Hey, Verbivores. Welcome to a new episode of the Verba Coffee Chat Podcast. Today, we are joined by John Ekman, Associate Vice Chancellor for Campus Services at Appalachian State, and Aaron Ochoa, Director at UC Davis Stores, to talk about equitable access. Listen in as we discuss the benefits of the model, how to create a pricing structure that works for your institution, and ideas for getting stakeholder buy-in. Learn how equitable access is changing the course materials business while driving access and affordability for all students. Hello, Erin. Hello, John. Welcome to the podcast. We are super excited to have you on today. We have been looking forward to this episode, and I know our listeners are very eager to hear a little bit more of a deep dive around the equitable access model. There's a ton of buzz going around and you two are pioneers um, in this model. It'll be a great conversation around how you've implemented, why you implemented, tips and tricks for others who are looking to do the same thing. You guys will bring a ton of great wisdom to this episode. So thanks for joining us. Glad to be thanks, here. Lisa. Appreciate it. Let's kick this off. I think a great first question out of the gate is why the move to equitable access? And Aaron, maybe we'll kick it off with you. You launched your program last fall. You can share some insight into why you felt the move to this equitable access model was important and how you broke the ground when doing this at UC Davis. The biggest thing for us is we report up through student affairs. So the student is the most important thing for us. What we started to realize was every other student service that is being provided by campus is done a certain way. And that is ultimately that there is a pooling of the students' funds that then pay for those services to be provided and it allows all students to access it and utilize it. Textbooks has always been that one thing that's external. It's the one thing that students have to pay for after they've paid for tuition. Those costs are, are never structured. Those costs can, can fluctuate term term. And it also fluctuates depending upon what the student has chosen to study. When we started to look at that and started to see, hey, wait, there are inequities, not just about what students are taking, but ultimately students who are in certain fields may not be able to pay for the books that they need. And when that's the case, if you have two students sitting in a class and one student has means and has a book and another student doesn't, there is not equity there. All students need to be able to be on the same footing as they go into their academic careers. What really made that actually helpful for us is when we found one of our employees who was able to provide us their own personal story about what that meant to them and how that affected them. I've told the story of, of Carlo several times. He was a first-generation um, low-income student who came from a single-parent family home. So all the things that we look at for students who, who may be struggling to acquire their course materials. His mom moved him into his dorm. She gave him a great hug and said how proud she was of him. And then she said, you know what? Books are expensive. I saved up for a year. She handed him an envelope. He came into the bookstore and he went downstairs and Carla was um, going to be studying aeronautical engineering. That was his passion. And so he went down to the engineering section. The first book he came across for his course was $230. He opened up his envelope. There was $100 in there. The money his mom saved for a year couldn't pay for one book for his courses. He started wandering around the stacks and came across political science and realized, hey, I do have enough money to pay for these books. So he went, he changed all his classes, changed his major, and Carlo now has a, a degree in political science, not a degree in aeronautical engineering. And that should never happen. Once Carlo told that story, that just hit home to say, okay, there's a problem on how we do this. So how do we fix it? What do we do? 
and equitable access is what the outcome was. Anyone that has heard that story, and now everyone listening has, it's, it's so impactful. When you really humanize the impact of what it is we do in this industry by looking at these individual stories, it really paints a clear picture of how some of those current models just aren't serving our students in a way that we maybe hope they would or hope they should. And it has created this call for change um, within the business model. And, and John, I'd love to hear your reason for launching EA at App State. App State has had a rental program in place as long or probably longer than any other university in the country. We first put it in place here in 1938, is as close as our records can get to it. And that program has been really successful for a long time. It has only provided the students with one book per class, but that has typically been the most expensive book in each class. And students have been able to be part of that program for about $150 a semester. And so that has really been a program, like Aaron's saying, that has saved our students a lot of money over the um, years. What we've noticed, though, here was that the entire textbook industry had been facing more and more disruption. Digital materials were getting more and more popular. They didn't really fit into our rental program, the original model of how it worked. Many of our publishers were starting to talk about how printed materials were going to become more and more limited in the coming years. And so we decided to try to get ahead of this. And that's when we got involved with the equitable access program as a way of staying ahead of all this disruption in the industry. It continued to allow us, which is the most important thing for us, to provide an affordable solution for students to get their books. We have had students that outside of the book, including their rental model that we previously had, wait until a few days into classes to decide to buy a book or not buy a book. And so what we love about this program now, since it includes everything, everybody has all their books day one, which has been a really nice change. And so it's been affordability, but then it's also been the ability to give our faculty all of the academic freedom they need to choose whatever they want. And uh, delivering the books this way has really helped us to remain ahead of the curve on the disruption and keep an affordable program in place. You say disruption, and I think everyone can probably resonate with disruption. It felt like last year we had disruption, but I think that disruption has continued and almost um, increased with all the supply chain issues that have come up over the course of the pandemic. I think one of the things that gives people apprehension about looking at an equitable access model or makes them nervous is pricing. How do you determine that flat rate price? How do you know that you're creating equity with this price, but how do you also ensure that you are going to where your the campus store is not going to be upside down in this type of model? I would love to get inside of how you created your pricing structure. John, do you want to kick us off? I know you guys already had this rental program in place how did you transition from that to this digital first structure? The original pricing for a rental program was $150 a semester. A faculty member had to keep that book in rotation for at least three years. And so they weren't allowed to change books. And so that's what allowed us to keep the price lower in that model because each book was basically used six times uh, through the semester program. That was one of our nervous things about this program because we're now going to include every book that we also had that was purchased this last time. We're really happy because we ended up at a semester price of just about $100 more than the original program, but now it includes every book. It was through a lot of negotiations with each publisher and in the, in the background, letting them know we really want them to be part of this program. The students are going to really enjoy the benefit 
of all the publishers being in the program, but that their pricing has to be competitive. The pricing really came through lots of negotiations with each publisher and, of course, a lot of consultation with Vital Source. When you look at the differences in the models, this EA is really such a win for publishers because when you look at scaling an, an inclusive access program, it's such a bottom-up approach and it involves a lot of publisher work. And so coming at it from this top down, it would seem as if publishers would be incentivized to lower that price because it really eliminates a lot of the boots on the groundwork needed to you know, convince faculty to go to digital. They can just actually be out there selling their product and not so much worrying about the type of format that's being delivered. Erin, can you share how you came to your pricing structure at UC Davis? It was a whole lot of data. Ultimately, what we did is we went back and we looked at were the two years prior to us going live in Equitable Access, we looked at every student, every class they were enrolled in, and each textbook that was required for those classes. And so ultimately what we did is we said, okay, here is what it would cost us if we supplied every single student who was in each of these classes with these books at the either the digital list price or courseware price or new book price. And we looked at everything and said, okay, let's plug in all of the different pricing structures that are out there and look at what is our worst case scenario, what is our best case scenario. Then what we had to do is we went with an actuarial company. It's the same actuarial company that UC uses for student health insurance. And so what the actuary does is it basically takes the data that you have and provides you a reporting and gives you options, but they do that by building in risk. And so what they did for us is said, okay, here is how many students you have. This is how many students you think are going to participate. This is how many faculty you have. This is how many books each faculty uses. And this is what the cost of those things are. So here are the things you don't know. How many students are going to participate? How many books faculty are going to require? And which publishers are those coming from? What they did then is put together some structures for us. At the same time, much like what John mentioned, we started having negotiations with our publishers and saying, okay, this is the time type of pricing we need to be able to provide this. And we did go digital first. So ultimately, if the book comes in a digital format, that is what we provide. If it doesn't, then we will provide a print book for, the, for that particular course. However, what that does is also incentivizes our publishers to continue to digitize books because it's easier for them to provide us that content digitally. So Ultimately, it was a mixture between pulling a lot of data out of our systems and then looking at that past data, putting it all together, getting it over to the actuary going through and providing us the different options that were available, and then us making a decision on, okay, what makes the most amount of sense that's going to provide us what we think we need, and then go for it. The team at App State and UC Davis have compelling reasons as to why the equitable access model is impactful. Keep listening as John and Aaron share how they worked closely with campus stakeholders to get buy-in of the model. How you get stakeholders bought into this equitable access model and kind of what that process looks like. I would um, think it'd be great for you to share those tips and tricks that helped you get EA off the ground and how you were able to get stakeholder buy-in. We have to lay our entire kind of advocacy for the program against the background of COVID. During March of 20, when everything shut down, we were still a traditional course material program with the vast majority of our um, materials being physical books. The students all went home. 
we signed a giant agreement with UPS and had them ship all of their books from wherever they lived back to us. Then for summer session one, we shipped all of our books back to the students and we proceeded to do that through the entire next academic year. And so we were shipping our books back and forth. So we went to the provost during the summer after having done that twice and said, I think it's time to start talking about digital course materials because this would all be a lot easier and a lot more flexible with a program that we can get students access to their materials wherever they are and whatever they're doing, regardless of what's happening with COVID down the road. And so they invited us to come and speak through a series of meetings with the faculty. And we spoke with the faculty throughout the fall with a faculty Senate committee that led to a survey of all the faculty over the winter. During the same time, we were talking with student government we're talking with administrators. After the survey came back from the faculty, there was a number of questions. We worked on those. And eventually it led to last spring, a vote by the faculty Senate that was over 70% in support of this program. And the attitude we took through this whole process was we're going to remain agnostic. Our job as the bookstores to get people their course materials. And let's let this process work its way through. What ended up being the major points that people rallied around was affordability for students, continuing to how can we have a program that's more affordable. Our campus, like most campuses, is all about sustainability. This was another case we made a lot of. We're removing the trucks and the shipping and the building of all these books and things like that. Increased academic freedom because we no longer need an adoption period for books. And so faculty can change their books all the time. Preparedness the first day of school was a big one. We've had conversations about food insecurity, and we were talking about kind of academic insecurity, the inability to pay for books. And we really, you know, tied those kind of conversations together. We have many first-generation students at the university who uh, maybe can't afford all those books. Access to content anytime, especially the ability to be offline, download the book in one place. And if you don't have Wi-Fi at your home, you're not limited by that. Flexibility for remote learning was a big one. ADA was a huge discussion we had ongoing with our faculty about just how this really did meet the highest levels of ADA access and how flexible these systems were. And one of the big ones was just inclusivity. We haven't been able to talk about including graduate students or students in certain programs because of the need to adopt certain books. So now we could include all of these programs that in the past couldn't be part of it. Those were the salient arguments that continued through in all of these discussions that I think really helped to make the case and ultimately led to a very strong positive response from the faculty and the students across the board, the board of trustees and, and so forth. For UC Davis, remember I mentioned that we report up through student affairs. So basically once we had sat down and, and put together a model and had an, an option, my boss, Jason Lorgan, went to his boss and, and said, here's what we're going to do, here's how we're going to change things, this is how it's going to help our students, and this is, you know, the benefits that we're going to provide. And so we took that, that route of telling our story through our line of command, for lack of a better term. We basically went up our line of student affairs, and then our vice chancellor got us a 15-minute presentation at the chancellor's cabinet. And so we went in and we, we presented our concept and, and what we were going to do. Basically, once we presented, we said, what are your questions. We're here to get feedback from you all. Ultimately, we look at it from the perspective of it is our job as the store to provide course materials to the students. That is what we do. It is not 
appropriate for us to go into somebody else's is area and say, hey, is it okay that we do this? There's no way that if a biologist isn't going to come into the bookstore and say, should we put microscopes in our biology lab? What do we know about that? Why are you asking us? Go ask, <laughs> go ask the biology department. So same deal. When we go in and, and have these conversations with folks, you know, the, the chancellor doesn't know anything about textbooks. The provost doesn't know anything about textbooks. That's our job. We take that on. As we build the models and we provide everything, we gave what our concepts were. Now, I mentioned earlier the Carlos story, and I mentioned that Jason and I have told that story numerous times. Carlos told that story once, and it was at that chancellor's council meeting. That's the only time he's ever told that story himself. One of the things I think that's also beneficial is find your Carlos story. Find what makes it real, because when it makes it real, it means something. Other than that, it's all theoretical. But when you see someone's pain, when you see that somebody has gone through that process, that's what makes it real. And, and, and that's the administrative. So basically, we went up our administrative piece, and then the chancellor, and then the provost asked us to, to present the same concept to the provost meeting, and then to the associate deans, and then to the faculty senate. So basically, we went up one line and down the other. And that's our concept um, of how we went through at least the administrative part. Now, outside of that, we also had all the other constituents. We had IT, we had uh, academic technology services, we had financial aid, we had athletics, student disability center, all these other folks who also are a part of this process in sitting down and talking through what it is that we do. You know, the most beneficial thing I can provide for anybody is when we did this, we looked at all the processes that already existed on campus. We knew we were doing something different. We couldn't put more work on other people. So we ultimately found what processes already do the things we wanted to do, and we mimic them. So that way, when we went to financial aid, we said, hey, here's how this department does this same process. We would like to do it just like that. And they said, okay, same thing with IT. Hey, this is how this process happens when the, this department does this particular process. We would like to mimic the same thing. I said, all right, once we have the data in there, everything happens on its own. So the whole point about that is don't reinvent the wheel. And that is how we got all these folks to say, yes, let's do this because it's the bookstores project. It ends up being a UC Davis overall project, but in, in terms of who's controlling what's happening and how do we do that, nobody else has to do any additional work. Whenever I hear both of you talk about these stories, I think you approached the stakeholders with a lot of confidence. And I think that really shows when you're not necessarily going to ask for permission, you're going in with a plan because you are there as the thought leader, as the expert and are sharing that plan because you do know what is best and the business model. I think one of the things that EA seems to have done, especially on both of your campuses, create some cohesion. And I would love to hear some of that cohesion with maybe the library, the LMS, your administration of kind of the success stories that maybe brought some of these groups together and breaking down some of the silos that may, you know, have existed prior to launching your equitable access program. One of the most fantastic things I think that's come from this is actually how much stronger our, our relationship to libraries been. We've always had a fairly strong relationship with them anyway. However, one of the things we did is we a long time ago asked, what is their biggest problem? And at least what our library was telling us is that they have all these resources that are available for students and nobody uses them. Not because that they don't want to use them, it's because they don't know they're there. And so how do we get these resources out in front of students? And so one of the things that, that happens through, through the Equitable Access Program, and at least through, uh, the way we do it at UC Davis, is that if a faculty requests a book, we submit all of our course materials, all our course requests to the library, and we share that with them. 
And then what they do is they cross-reference what they have already as a digital title that has multi-use access. They ultimately come back to us and say, oh yeah, we already have these books. Here's the links to them. And we put that into the, the interface in which the student sees. So it is in the student's bookshelf when they go to look for their class. If it's a library resource, it says it's a library resource and it allows them a link that goes directly to the library and to access that book. So there's a couple of things that provide benefit there. One, the library is getting the access that they weren't actually getting before. We're pushing students in that direction. But the other piece to that that no one actually ever talked about was the university was paying twice for the same content. The library was buying it and then the bookstore was buying it and reselling it to students. So why are we paying twice for something? We shouldn't be. That collaboration has helped support the financial side of the house too. It saved us, at least in that first year, about $400,000, which at retail would have been somewhere in the probably $800,000 to students. Our collaborations were aided by the long conversation that we had with Faculty Senate. I think that gave a lot of the university insight to what was coming. We worked very closely with our central IT folks to roll all of the course materials out through the LMS here at our campus. I think they were prepared for it because this conversation had been underway for so long with the faculty. And we were able to bring them in immediately after the whole process was approved by the faculty senate. And I really have a sense they were invested in the program being successful because they knew so much of the university was invested now in the program being successful. So by having such a strong response from our faculty senate really ensured the other parts of the university were on board with helping this thing go through. I think there was also a lot of excitement about being one of the first schools to be part of this. And I think that really got excitement of these different departments who wanted to then join in and be part of that program. It's great seeing the campus cohesion that's happening because of equitable access programs. Keep listening to hear how EA is changing the course materials business model. I think it's so interesting, John, that you took this long running rental program and were able to so easily shift the minds of your faculty? I think part of it for us was we just accurately described what everyone else was seeing. And everybody has seen bookstores changing all over the country. Everyone has seen themselves using a Kindle at home and getting more comfortable using digital. Everybody knew students who didn't buy their books day one and weren't ready for class. And so everybody saw these problems and was nice about this program is it offers a easy and affordable solution. It really provides in a competitive advantage for our admissions crew when they're out recruiting and saying, look how modern our institution is. And so we may be up in the ski hills and the fly fishing mountains of Western North Carolina, but it's a very modern school applying modern solutions. And your students responded in a very favorable way. You might share with the listeners what your opt-out rate was for your program for this past term. Uh, 0.8. So less than 1% of our students opted out of the program. And it's a Nobody has to be part of the program. It's a complete volunteer. You, anybody can opt out for any reason. 
how is this changing your business? Obviously, Aaron, you've seen this for a couple of, of terms now. And John, you've just wrapping up your first term, but how is it changing, evolving your course materials inside your store? We saw immediate impact. This was the real test of concept this fall when we opened up. We were used to lines of students all around the bookstore and down the hall and everything else. And the lines were gone. It was incredible. Lines were just gone. Um, but the sales in the bookstore jumped up because now students could come into the bookstore and actually go shop for sweatshirts and everything else. And so the bookstore actually had improved business. And so the bookstore has just, we are by state statute not allowed to keep reserves in a significant way. And we're increasing our contribution to general university scholarship by over half a million dollars in the coming year. We'll contribute $1.3 million to uh, the scholarship fund for the university. A lot of that has come through efficiencies. There's more efficiencies with this program. There's less costs from just shipping and the moving of all these books and less waste because we don't have books sitting on the shelves forever and, and great pricing from our publisher partners. And so it's, I think it's a, been a win-win for faculty, for students, for publishers, and for the bookstore. When I think about this, how has the business changed? The first thing I think about is how did we wrap our head around the model being different? And I think that's a very important thing to talk about. John talked that they've had their, their rental program for almost 100 years. And so that concept is not new to their institution, but it is new to ours. And so what that means was we went from a retail model, in other words, selling individual units of things and putting margins on them. Ultimately, we changed the way we thought about that process and we changed the model from a retail model to a student support model. And what does that mean? Lots of times folks in the industry will say, what's the margin on your equitable access? There's not a margin. We don't look at it that way anymore. What we do is we look at what are the costs associated with delivering the program, and we add that to the costs of like our cost of goods. And so ultimately think about it in the way of you have multiple buckets. You have the revenue that comes in from the students paying for their charge, their equitable access charge, that fills a bucket of money. We take all of the cost of goods that comes from our publisher costs, and those get removed from that bucket. Then we also have the cost that costs us to administer the program. And that's everything from staff wages, student wages, uh, IT costs, things like that. Those get removed from the bucket. And then whatever is left over then gets reinvested back into the institution. But the whole process, again, is wrapping our head around this isn't a retail transaction. This isn't a per unit sale of a something that has a margin on it and moving it to this other model. And I think that's very important, not only for the stores to try to wrap their head around because it's not what they normally do, but it's extremely important too that they articulate that to campus. Bookstores always have a negative connotation. They are the capitalist. That's not the goal. Our EA financials are actually separate than the regular bookstore financials. And that was done on purpose because that money is specifically done for that process. So that was one of the business things we had to wrap our head around is, okay, what does this mean? How do we, and it took us forever to get past that, but we did. And then there's the operational standpoints. We, you used to have all the shipping and, and, and the receiving pieces. And we started our process about two and a half years prior to COVID. And many folks asked, you know, assumed that the Equal Access program was a COVID response. It was not. 
it was just happened to fall during that time. Now, I had to admit, John talked about the struggles that they had about shipping books back and forth and everything else like that. We were ahead of the game. We didn't have to worry about that. We already had a way to deliver digital content to students, regardless of whether they were in state, out of state, or out of country. And that was spectacular to be able to have that process. Now, that also did help in the concept of moving into a digital first option because they really didn't have a choice. Of course, I could ship something to Indonesia. It's going to take six weeks, but I could do it. Or we have a digital one and they get it you know, in 30 seconds. Wrapping our heads around all those pieces was very important. The fact that we had that ability to do those things was a benefit for us at the store. And then it's a transition. So our textbook buyers are still textbook buyers. Our course materials manager is still a course materials manager. They just do different stuff it, in the, the customer service. I'll give you an example. We have a customer service desk downstairs. Usually people walk into the store, go down to the customer service desk, say, hey, what books do I need? Now we have a online customer service on our help desk. Students email in and ask their questions and we handle it digitally, handle it online. That's the expectation. And so that is the other thing is, COVID has created a new expectation for people, not just students, but for people. They have to do business a certain way and they expect businesses to react to them a certain way. That is what we've had to be able to do from that perspective. If we're gonna move it, you know, into a digital format, then you know what, we're gonna to have to be able to, to have our customer service be digital. We're gonna to have to be able to communicate with our, our, our constituents through a digital fashion. All these things have to move in that direction. And those are some of the business pieces that, that we've had to again, think about change and try to rethink how we do things. A lot of us have been forced into change over the last 18 months, and a lot of change has been driven proactively. And it's really great to hear how you've driven this really proactive change in, in both of your stores. What's the one piece that you'd really share with them to help move them in the right direction, maybe, maybe quicker than you were able to get there at your store? I can offer maybe two things. One, you have to be committed. And here's what I mean by that. You can't just think, well, I'd like to try this. I'd like to try an equitable access program and see what happens. Because when you go, to, go at it from that perspective and something pushes back, you're going to feel like it's not worth doing the try. So you need to be committed in what you're deciding to do. We just said it. Change is hard. You're going to go through some folks that are going to have pushback. And you're going to need to be able to push through that and, and understand that piece. It can be hard. And sometimes it can be a little daunting, but know that if you are committed and you are, are, are going to put in the work, it's going to have success. That's number one. The, the second thing that, you know, and I've mentioned it several times, find your Carlo story, find something that you can attach to that makes it real to people. And again, it doesn't have to be a one thing. It could be several sorts. It could be, a, but my point is students go through these processes. Students have difficult time. We're here to remove barriers. That's the goal is to remove barriers. And if we can do that, if we can show what the barriers are and again, create something that's real to somebody, then it's much more likely to be successful. And so those are, are probably my, my two pieces of wisdom is be stoic in the fact that you're going to go through this process and sometimes it's going to hurt, but you're doing the right thing. And that's what's important. My advice would be lock into your arguments for the program early and keep them really simple because the arguments for EA resonate. It's more affordable. It's hard for anybody to argue with that. It's more inclusive. We can now include people 
that haven't been part of the program ever, graduate students, distance learners, students who couldn't afford books before now get all of their books. From an ADA perspective, it's more inclusive. This also, both of those first two, the affordability and inclusivity speak to insecurity. And the food insecurity argument is one administrators across the country are aware of. And when you start to talk about academic insecurity, this is a great one to talk about as far as that affordability. Sustainability is an easy case to make with this program. And then flexibility. There's more flexibility for the student to learn where they want to learn. They no longer have to haul 150 pounds of books around. They can read it on their phone. Faculty can change their materials more quickly. We just kept saying those things over and over again. And those resonated with students. They resonate with faculty. They resonate with administrators. And it makes its own case. To me, it's something everybody should strongly consider heading this direction for those same reasons. That was amazing advice and wisdom throughout this entire episode. So thank you both. It's so commendable what you are doing at your institutions and in so exciting for your students and to have you both as advocates for the students and to really drive through some of these barriers to make these programs happen, I think is just really exciting. And, and we're so proud of you and to be a part of each of your journeys. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's been such a pleasure to have you both. Thanks for listening and big thanks to Aaron and John for sharing their wisdom and expertise. Make sure you subscribe to the Verba Coffee Chat podcast so you know when a new episode is live.